Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. That's when I got the cyber bug, was in the late 90s, was the realization that this is the future and this is where we should be focused on. When software got weaponized, we didn't do a darn thing. I read somewhere a couple of years ago that cybercrime now generates more money than the illicit drug trade. I would and, and believe that's that. remarkable. Why do you think we're so behind? Because, frankly, we haven't made it easy for people. This is Intelligence Matters with Michael Morrell, a joint production of thecipherbrief.com and CBS News. I'm Cypher Brief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. In this podcast, the former acting director of the CIA speaks with top leaders asking the right questions and making connections that provide deeper insight into complex security events. Because intelligence matters. Terry Roberts was a career intelligence official, rising through the ranks to a number of senior positions in the intelligence community, including serving as the deputy director of naval intelligence. Since leaving government, Terry has focused extensively on the cyber threat, serving as the executive director of the Carnegie Mellon Software Engineering Institute and the vice president for cyber engineering and analytics at a leading consulting firm called Task. She is now running her own commercial startup on cyber called Whitehawk. I had the opportunity to sit down with Terry recently to talk about the cyber threat that we face as a nation and what we can do about it. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morell. Terry, great to have you with us. It's terrific to see you again. Michael, I've really been looking forward to this because we always used to have fun together. I think we first met in London. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Chris Inglis who introduced Absolutely. us. And for people who don't know, Chris Inglis was the deputy director of the National Security Agency and is a remarkable intelligence officer. And he introduced us. Some people think he should be the director of NSA, including me. Um, remarkable intelligence I, I would officer. Vote for that. And he introduced us. 
And I remember that after meeting you, that I came home and told Mary Beth, my wife, that I met somebody named Terry, and she was whip smart and tons of fun. (laughs) Does that make sense? It does. And I remember thinking that you, Chris, and I in London at the same time focused during, you know, the war. That's right. The Iraq War was full-blown. And London was one of the major targets, and we as Americans in, in the embassy were major targets. And I remember thinking, I was so happy to be the three of us together and how amazing it was and how smart we all were together. And then we, we actually served as well on the deputies committee of the intelligence community where we would go over to bowling, right? And we'd all be in the room and trying to solve some of the tough community issues. And we were a little cabal. Um, we were the ones who saw the value in, in coordination and sharing and getting things done. Yeah, I think you, Tish Long, who was the deputy at DIA, I believe at the time, and then Chris at NSA, I just felt that we could look across the room no matter what the issue was and and articulate what were the things we needed to focus on and how we needed to move forward and not be parochial. And cut through the bureaucratic yes. stuff that was happening below us, right? Exactly. Yeah. So before we dig into cyber, I wanted to ask you a bit about the Office of Naval Intelligence which is an organization that you spent some time at and that you helped to lead. As you know, there, there are 17 different organizations, entities in the U.S. intelligence community, and a handful of those are the intelligence arms of armed services, so the Navy, Army, Air Force, Marines, and Coast Guard. And what I'd love for you to do is just take a couple of minutes to describe for our listeners what those organizations do on a day-to-day basis and how that's different from what some of the more national organizations like CIA and NSA and NGA and and even DIA, right, do do for a living. Okay. So this is a bit of a softball and, you know, starting in naval intelligence and my father was in naval intelligence, so I'm a legacy. It was the first intelligence entity. Was he uh, in the service or was he He was in the military. He was in the military. And... We were the first intelligence entity established in 1882. Oh, by the way. Did not know that. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the first director of naval intelligence was a lieutenant, which, of course, back then was, you know, important. Um, So to steer back to, you know, what is the role that the military service intelligence entities play? Is it, if you think about it, We're working to leverage the entire intelligence community, right, on behalf of their requirements, both in preparing for war, assessing uh, adversary capabilities, influencing the kinds of capabilities that we build, right, so that they're able to counter those threats, and then enable those forces to operate globally And again, with the Navy, and I'm partial, it's a littoral, it's an undersea, it's a at the sea, and it's in the air and space. So I always found it pretty exciting place to be because it was really a 360 global presence. Is it also supporting operations, or absolutely is that is that that different? No, that's no, it's all part of the same thing. So if you think about it, you have the strategic level, right? So on the end-to-end staff at OpNav and in support of the Secretary of the Navy, 
working directly with the Intel community, right, components and entities, and then going down to the operational level, which is the numbered fleet level around the world. And then at the tactical level where you have an amphibious readiness group or a carrier group that are always operating overseas. So it's all those levels. So a big focus for you was China, undoubtedly. Yes. And their growing capabilities of putting our Navy at risk, right, in in a conflict between the United States and China. Yes. And my first 10 years were in the Pacific arena. But at that time, (laughs) you know, I'm a little bit dated, it was the Soviet Union and China equally, right? And so it was focused on the Soviet Navy at that time. And then China was just rising up to be a power. And then we went on from there. How do the armed forces intelligence services relate back to DIA? And how do they relate to the, to the as right. you know, very large intelligence entities that sit in the combatant commands? Right. So if you think about it, what we did was develop, for lack of a better word, lanes in the road. So, for instance, in naval intelligence, we have primacy on all of the maritime, right, arena. So it's the uh, sea lanes of communication globally, right, over 60% of the world's trade, right, and it might even be more than that is via the seas. And so it's making sure that that trade can move. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's also focused on underwater cables and communications, which as you know, on the unclass, you can look it up and it will show you that the vast majority of communications forever in this century and before have been via underwater cables. So making sure that those are safe and secure and most of them connect to the United States as And a how hub. that could be put at risk in peacetime and wartime. Exactly. So with that maritime focus, then that plugs into the rest of the services, right, working on the land focus and the air with the Air Force. And then DIA, think of it as more of the strategic global, but from a defense standpoint in support of the Secretary of Defense and all of the operational planning and execution, but on a strategic level. So each service plugs in their piece, and then DIA is that umbrella. They also own and operate all the intelligence centers, the Joint Intelligence Operations Centers at the COCOMs, but they're manned by all of the services. You would send people to those. Exactly. So so when I went out to Hawaii and visited the Intel Yes. At Pacific Command, those were some of your people. Absolutely. And and actually, they were built upon the original fleet ocean surveillance center that was in Hawaii, then became the joint operations center, which is why in Hawaii, it's prime, the largest number of folks are Navy and Marine Corps still. So there's there's a certain history and legacy of how things evolved in the operational intelligence community in support of the COCOMs. Um, okay, now to cyber. Right? Yes. When did you first notice this as an issue, right? When did yeah. it first show up in your inbox? Well, it's funny because I think, and I think it's a reason why people with a naval background are very strong cyber people as a whole. We're used to living and working in a virtual environment. So when you're at sea, you're operating off your instruments and your sensors 
and your communication. Particularly when you're in a submarine. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, at. otherwise you only have line of sight. Right. Line of sight when you're flying, line of sight when you're in a ship, and that's not very far. So sensors and data from sensors and integration of that into the afloat operations centers and having to rely on that virtual environment is something that's very natural to us. So to us, it was simply cyber is an extension of the command control communications, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, what we call C4ISR. It was a natural progression into information operations because it was you're tracking communications. Where did communications moved? They moved online. Many of us were a part of that transition in the Navy where we took networks afloat. And at the time, we're saying, and this what's, is in the what's 90s. That in, in the 90s? In the in 90s. The 90s yeah. It was called IT21, <laughs> believe it or not. And it was about taking ISP capabilities on board ship, first on the larger flagships and the aircraft carriers, and then later on through uh, NMARSAT being able to take it to the smaller ships. Mm-hmm. At the time, there and were. And subs and aircraft too, eventually? Yes, but it's still still communications, right? In the ocean, you're reliant upon traditional means, HFDF, and then satellite, which is expensive. So you have limitations. So when these networks are first being deployed to these ships, are you thinking about security? I was. And that's when it kind of started. There were a group of us. So cryptologists think this way. Intelligence professionals think this way. Not so much the communications officers, so it was bringing up that conversation. But if you think about it, it mirrored what was going on in the business world. It was all about the empowerment of moving these capabilities. All about the advantages. And so those of us who were bringing up assurance issues, it was kind of like, well, we'll do that, but let us get this implemented. So then in uh, 98, I was sent to really stand up C4ISR and IO um, intelligence support at ONI under uh, Jake Jacoby at the time, who was the director of naval intelligence. And we actually raised the issue because, as you know, we did the intel support to acquisition, so major acquisition programs. One of them was the Navy Marine Corps Network, Next Generation. And we said, well, we should do a threat assessment (laughs) on that capability, on that acquisition program, treat it like a regular acquisition program. And everybody kind of looked at us and said, it's IT. You know, what are you thinking of? And so we really had to fight to be allowed to do that assessment. And then we had to fight to do Intel support to computer network defense. And so we set up those initial capabilities in the late 90s with people like Bob Gorley and Mike Kuhn. And how did you overcome the resistance? Um, So we had some... Wearing people down? (laughs) We had some advocates. Admiral Windsor Whiten was Naval Security Group at the time. He was a strong advocate for us. And then we also said, hey, just... Let us do it. We won't slow things down. (laughs) 
And then we'll be able to highlight things that we'll need to be able to take into consideration. So we had some advocacy and then we moved on from there. And how much of your time as deputy at ONI um, did you spend on this issue? So again, I go back to Navy Roots, which is we're always thinking about an adversary's communications and surveillance and intelligence, right, focuses, knowing as much as we can about that and protecting our own. So to me, it's embedded in everything you do. It's embedded in your all-source analysis. It's embedded in your operational planning. It's embedded in the capabilities that you're buying. I would say it was really, though, the DNI at the time, uh, Mike McConnell, and then Melissa Hathaway, when they pulled together the Comprehensive National Cyber Initiative, CNCI. And Mike's been a big leader on this. Yes. And that, I believe, was starting in like 2007, 2008 timeframe when they pulled that initiative together. And it was really all all about, and Melissa will hit me up because I'll probably, you know, screw up my uh, approach to it. But it really was about we've got to get our act together across the intelligence community to especially include defense intelligence regarding cyber threats, cyber all-source analysis, computer network defense, information assurance. And so how do we pull together a whole package of initiatives that fast-track us to where we really need to be And that was what CNCI was. So I've learned something here. I think it's really cool that you were there at the birth of this thing, right? (laughs) (laughs) So you've been been doing this a long time. I have. I have. And it was really – that's when I got the cyber bug was in the late 90s, was the realization that this is the future and this is where we should be focused on. And do you think of it as a just a new domain, the way some no. people talk about it? No, I don't. And by that, I mean just right. for listeners, right. I mean we have- We have the cyber domain, air domain, sea Land, domain. sea, yeah, space, no. all that. No. I think of it, and it actually some work that I did with Sue Gordon while she was the doing- The current deputy in yes. the intelligence community. Yes. When Sue was the director of IOC, and she Which led the a Information review. Operations Center at CIA. And she was asked by CIA director at the time, Brennan, to conduct a review that was really about the impact of the digital age on mission. On CIA's mission. Yes. So it's about the impact on an organization. Right. And I was so excited to be brought into that because it's the way I had always thought about things. It's the impact on business of being in the digital age. It's the impact on society. It's the impact on government duties, responsibilities, and mission. So if you don't think of it holistically like that, then you miss things because it really has changed everything. Right, right, everything. And it creates all sorts of vulnerabilities in ways that we didn't even think a nation state would use Social media, um, the way the Russians have used it, for example, right? We just didn't think about it. So I would say the intelligence community always did because we're paranoid national security professionals, and that's our job, is to think like bad guys and then to work to prevent that from impacting Right, but I'm talking about the larger 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 national security community, right? Does not. And, And I actually think 
a lot of it is that folks our age who are in power really still don't get it and it hurts their brains and they know it's important but they don't know how to systemically think about it. Yeah, so this is a great, a great transition, right? So let's break the conversation going forward into two pieces. Okay. One is, what are the threats here? What are the risks here? Mm -hmm. How do you think about that? Mm -hmm. How have they evolved? You know, where are they going? Um, Let's have a conversation about that. Sure. And then we'll have a conversation about what do we do about it, right? Okay, which is what I'm all about. Right, what we can do about it both in terms of the government's responsibility here and the private sector's responsibility. Absolutely. So I think it's actually pretty simplistic. We've had espionage and crime and fraud and sabotage and activism forever. It's just moved online. It's another tool for the adversaries and quite frankly for us in some of these cases. It's where the money is. It's where the information is. It's where the influence is. It's where society is. So it's the natural place to go. There's another combination. When software became weaponized in 1988 at, you know, openly with the Morris worm, that changed everything. Because at the heart of our systems, I call software the heart and mind of your system, when that became weaponized, then that changed the whole atmospherics of what the vulnerabilities were. It's like nuclear fission. It changed everything. But instead of us doing what we did with the nuclear age, which was to invest in training, education, government entities, oversight, accountability, research and development, the defense industrial base. When software got weaponized, we didn't do a darn thing. Why do you think there's a difference? Do you think it was the magnitude of the consequence? I think there wasn't an understanding of what the potential impact was. And so they did not look at it as the future and where we needed to focus our research and development and educational programs. So, so, so let's, break, let's break this down into its pieces. So nation states, yes. right? a, a huge part of the threat here, right? Obviously, Russia and China, big players, the Iranians, the North Koreans to a lesser extent. How do you think about okay. capabilities right. Right, of those entities, what they're focused on, uh, to the extent we can talk about that, right? Right. And then also, are other nation states now getting into this business, right? Is the number of nation states playing this game growing? So if if you think about it, the high-end actors, for lack of a better word, let's say the, you know, the Jedi hackers, okay, those of us, and I speak with the U.S. in there, um, those are the good guys, who, by the way. who, absolutely, who who got into this tradecraft as our natural progression, okay? It was the Soviets at the same time. So I remember one time I had dinner with Kaspersky. Uh, we were actually doing an FCA event a few years ago, and we discovered that he went into the GRU the same year I went into naval intelligence. That must have been an interesting dinner. <laughs> 
hey, you know, you gotta, you gotta meet and greet everybody. And so there was sort of that aha moment in my head of, of course, it's a natural. So you're saying thing. he's he's the he's the Russian version of Terry Roberts. <laughs> I, I I think in some ways, and then remember, there are no rules on their side. Right. We have very many rules on our side. So, for instance, right with the Chinese, they don't have rules against their state actors conducting um, industrial, espionage a, a, industrial espionage for the, for the economic and, benefit and of their companies. And we're not allowed to do that. Okay. So those differentiations, but capability-wise, I would put, okay, and this is just high level, yep. U.S., Israel, and the Russians to include Bulgaria, mm-hmm. some of the mm-hmm. former uh, Eastern Bloc. The Brits, you put the Brits in there. Um, and I would put the Brits right neck and neck with us. So to me, those that's a group. I think China is catching up quickly because they can and they have brute force. Yeah, they got numbers. And actually numbers in in cyber have have a definite impact. Mm -hmm. And because old methodologies, when it's done in numbers, can be just as effective as the more sophisticated approaches. You just tend to leave more fingerprints, right? And then you can go to the North Korea, Iran, and obviously because of the things that have happened over the past decade, they're working hard to catch up because of events that they. And in some ways, through. they're more willing to use cyber, not in the way the Russia, the Russians and Chinese do, but they actually use it to do damage, right? Yes, they're playing a different game. Yes, and they don't see the yes the same with Saudi Aramco. Effect, right? I mean, they fried right. thirty thousand computers, right. and with um, Sony. They fried. They damaged uh, the network. The yep. entire network right. at Sony. What about other countries? Do you see other countries getting into this game or is that something we don't need to worry about at the moment? <laughs> so Because it's I, so easy now, right, to, to just buy these tools. Well, you see, don't have to develop them anymore on your own. So the way I look at it is, and I mentioned this five years ago in a threat assessment, was, hey, mercenaries. That's who I worry about the most. So to me, the highest end hackers are many of them for hire. So, so that's, now we're moving into the kind of the second group here, organized crime, cyber right, crime. Right. Or state actors can hire them. I see. I see. I see. In other words, right? What are our old thing? Opportunity, capability, intention, right? So if you have the intention and the opportunity are combined with the capability, if I can buy those. Then I don't need to develop them. I don't have to spend all those resources. And so that's what I'm always concerned about is really tracking the high-end actors and campaigns. I mean, my friends who are really good at this say there's really only about 100 to 150 campaigns going on in the world at any one time that are of that elite. And, And by a campaign, what do you mean? So it's usually that, okay, what am I trying to achieve? I'm a high-end actor. And I have a specific I'm a, objective in I have mind, an objective. I have resources plan, built around it. And, and maybe it's been going on for a year, two years, five years, 10 years, right? So the Russian social media attack against us, you would define as a campaign. Yes. And there may be a bunch of sub-campaigns right. to that overarching strategy And there may be have. there may be Russian intelligence officers working on it, and there may be also people they hired, mercenaries they Exactly. Hired. And there may also be Russian intelligence officers who during the day work for the government and at night work for organized crime. Exactly. Doing the same thing. 
Yeah. So the organized crime piece has become a big issue, right? It's raised a lot of money for these Again, people. Again, you go where the money is. It's hard to gain attribution if you're good. It's much more difficult to prosecute you. You don't put yourself in physical harm. You don't necessarily have to leave a trail all over the place. And you don't have to involve a ton of people. I read somewhere a couple of years ago that cybercrime now generates more money than the illicit drug trade. I would and, believe and that's that. That's remarkable. Well, think about this. Most of the statistics are telling us that between 1% to 2% of our GNP is lost every year in the U.S. to cybercrime. So the magnitude, right? We're only growing at 1% to 2%. Right. So that's a big number. <laughs> that's a big, that's number. a big number. It goes anywhere from $450 billion to $500 billion, something in there. But yeah. So there was a deal um, between... President Xi and President Obama that the Chinese were going to stop industrial espionage. And that hasn't happened, has it? I think it peaked between 10 years ago and five years ago. I do think the talks helped. Mm -hmm. I think there was some acknowledgement that had never happened before. I do think the prosecution, prosecutions under the FBI, what do you, yes, uh, the yes, right, yeah, yep, prosec, yep, right? Yep, yep. I think that had an impact. So I do think that doing those investigative, diplomatic, constant pressure matter, matter and have an impact and that we should keep it on full swing. And then- Terrorists. Do you worry about terrorists in this space or Absolutely. not? Absolutely. Do you? So I remember I brought this up at one of our, you know, deputy offsites one time, and it was around 2009. And I said, that's the combination I'm most worried about, the mercenaries and the terrorists coming together. And I was told to, you know, sit in the corner, though. What am I thinking about? So it happened to a lot, I remember. Because it was more about we haven't seen signs right, 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 as right. opposed to should we be looking right. and preventing right. this from happening. Right. Absolutely right. And you're still worried about that. I am. And do you see any of that yet? Or Well, if you think about the level of the social media piece that's going on with terrorists and the recruiting to me, that's a you, – that's, you, you put this in I, as well, information operations broadly defined absolutely. here. Absolutely. They're maximizing the digital age environment to their benefit and at low cost. And then you've got hacktivists. Yes. Right? Who probably don't bring the same level of capability but are motivated against well, a particular company or a particular type of company or what have you. So – Again, it goes that you can be nation state, you can be a group of some kind, or you can be an individual. Yeah. So I was coming to that, right? The insight. Right? The ins and then, yeah. so in any of the categories that you're talking about, yep. right, go across that. So to me, it's the empowerment of small groups and individuals. Yeah. And in particular, individuals who work inside of an organization. Yes. So the insider threat. Yes. I often tell people that's your biggest cyber threat. It's not it Russia or China. It's the person who has the keys to the kingdom, who is your administrator, your IT administrator. It's Edward Snowden. Right. right. Okay. We're going to depress everybody if we don't get to some solutions. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get to solutions. So let me back up. So 
are the defenses keeping up with the offense? Offense always has the advantage here. How do you think about that? Is the the capabilities of the adversaries going to continue to grow here before we get to the, the, what do we do about all this? Okay. So the investment and focus is on the offense. We are not researching, educating, and training, and then offering capabilities on the defense side across the spectrum of society. And so therefore, we're out of whack. So we're the Wild West, and there's no locks on the doors, and the only people who are carrying weapons are the bad guys, okay? And there's no sheriff in town. So that's kind of where we are right now. So why do you think we have not seen a cyber Pearl Harbor? Why do you think we haven't seen a catastrophe? You know, right now it's damaged by a thousand cuts. People have warned about the big event, the cyber 9-11. See, that's not what I worry about. Why do you think I worry about loss of trust in our networks and our wireless capabilities and our online which transactions. Would, which, would, which would result in what? The loss of trust. So. And by trust, I think you mean the users losing trust in using the network and all the good you get from it, right? If we no longer can have communications, if we no longer can conduct financial transactions, we can't shop and buy, we can't order in other words, our global economy is laying on top of this network, right? To include IoT, to include wireless, to include data centers, to include data analytics. When the integrity of our data gets to a point or the transactions get to a point that we no longer have trust in them, then it's a systemic shutter. Yeah, and real damage, real economic yeah, damage. Yeah, I don't think we've done enough okay. study on All right. that. All right, so now that's my Pearl Harbor. Yeah, I got if that you. makes I got, sense. Yes, it absolutely makes sense. So now let's get to what can we do about this as a okay. nation, and let's divide that into the government and then the private sector. Okay, so I believe it starts with training and education, and that was one of the reasons that I went to Carnegie Mellon to begin with. And it starts with digital literacy training in grade school and high school so that they really understand some of the basics. It's kind of like we do driver's ed, (laughs) but we really don't do the basics on operating effectively and securely and protecting yourself. Right. Okay. It's not, it's not there. Our high school counselors don't know how to tell people about all the great jobs there are in this arena and what are the courses or the certifications that they can take so that they can have great middle-class professions. And then our universities, although with the NICE initiative, the National Initiative for Cyber Education of five, six years ago, created a partnership across a lot of universities, over 120 to create curriculum and programs, you know, and graduate, undergraduate programs. That that is actually one of the shining lights that actually exists, but we need to scale it a hundredfold. So training and education. It's about the economy. We should be promoting soft manufacturing for- What do you mean by that? So if you think about it, 
the bad thing about software is it's ubiquitous. The good thing about software, it's ubiquitous and it's cheap. So it's very easy for you to set up a soft manufacturing initiative, 3D printing capabilities. I see. see. Software-driven manufacturing. Exactly. Let's promote the establishment of small businesses and basements and garages across the country, call centers. In other words, what are the digital age needs that we have? And let's start home growing them again here without having to build huge plants. Okay. Gotcha. And if we have the right training and education, right? Because it's hard, by the way, trust me, it's hard to uh, hire software programmers and engineers and four million unfilled jobs in the United States and they're unfilled because the people don't have the skills. Right. And a lot of them are in IT. Yeah. And these are the kind of professions that you're creating something, a product you can sell. So it's moving away from the service focused society we have back to the manufacturing. I mean, we're the kings in this space and so there's no reason why we can't do that. So that would be Okay. That is my focus. And then the final thing on the defense side is all of us take responsibility. So we're not taking responsibility today for our own and defense. And when you say we, do you mean individuals and companies or do you mean the government or do you mean everybody? Everybody. We're not owning it, okay? We're not – again, I'll go back to the nuclear age. You know, hey. Everybody owned it. Everybody owned it. Everybody owned owned it. it. I remember in elementary school, we were taught to climb under the desk, right? Yes. And I'm down under the desk thinking this is not going to be any safer when that nuclear weapon goes off than just sitting up at the desk. But we did it. Right. So would you leave your doors and windows open and would you leave your jewels on the sidewalk or would you leave your customer data at the front door? No. So use the physical security analogy and carry it over. So why do you think, why do you think we're so behind? Because frankly, we haven't made it easy for people. We haven't given them the tools to understand the little that they need to know. And then we haven't put in place. I've seen some of the government communications things and it's like, you know, detect, prevent, da, 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 da. that has absolutely no meaning to a regular individual or a small business or even a so mid-sized what, what, business. What do you say? What would you say to a, if you were sitting down having a conversation with a CEO of a mid-sized company and he says, well, what do I need to do to protect myself? Okay. What do you say to him? So let's examine your high value assets, the assets that result in your revenue and reputation. And let's start there, right? It's a national security approach. The world's trying to get me. I have limited resources. Let's prioritize. We're not going to do everything, okay? Let's focus. If, if you generate revenue via your website, let's protect your website first, okay? Mm-hmm. If you have client financial data, customer financial data, Let's protect that first. Now, if you have very important intellectual property. Yes. Let's encrypt that. Why does that need to be on the network with everything else, mm-hmm. right? Every time a university gets hit, I go, why are you using social security numbers 
why don't you just give them a student ID number, associate it with that name and record, lock up the record, okay, and then just use the name and that you number. Don't put their personal identity at risk. See, this this doesn't have to be. It's not be, rocket science. It's really not. We're trying to protect everything and we're protecting nothing. What's the government's role here? So I think so, yeah. I think part of the problem is that the private sector is waiting for the government to solve this problem. And I, I want to get your reaction to that. But at the end of the day, what's the government's responsibility here? So I'll go back to the automobile age uh, analogy. The government's responsibility was to help with major infrastructure, major policies that could help everybody else. But there's also an individual responsibility that they set up. They said, you have to go to driver's ed. You have to get a license. You have to follow the rules of the road. We'll take care of the highways. We'll work with you to put the rules of the road in place. We'll come up with a, with a consistent framework for you to follow. And they don't over-regulate them. They regulate to safety. They don't regulate to control the automobile industry. So it's, it's finding that combination, right, of things that you need to put in place. And I think it's starting with little things. I think we've been trying to get the mother of all statute, you know, through Congress, and that's not going to work. So start with things we can agree upon, like training and education. Do you think norms between countries are possible with regard to what's acceptable and what's not in cyberspace in terms of nation state behavior? So I think the discussion there is regarding resetting a realistic expectation of privacy in the digital age. Because what we're doing at the national and international level is we're fighting about privacy versus security, as opposed to coming up with what is the right construct for privacy in the digital age. If you have emails on company-owned laptop, you have no expectation of privacy. Right. Okay? Just back it up. You have no expectation. You have no right. If you're out in social media, should you really have an expectation of privacy? See, I would say no. 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 But having these conversations in the eaches, right? Let's get down into specifics and let's decide what we, okay, so my PII, I want protected. Right now it's not. Personally identifiable information. Yes. My financial data is not protected. So let's nick down to those. Let's go to those next generation technologies like blockchain and end-to-end trust, okay? Let's focus on what we need to protect and back everything else up. Okay, so so let's let's shift gears again here a little bit. You've had three different iterations now post post your your career in the government. <laughs> All of them focused on cyber. Yes. So I want to ask you about each of those okay. and sort of what you did in each of those and what you learned from the experience with regard to cyber. And the first is being the executive director of the Carnegie Mellon Software Engineering Institute. What was that all about? So as I told you in the late 90s was when I got the cyber bug. I wanted, I wanted to go back to cyber, 
full time, but I wanted to get reconnected to the body of knowledge. And, you know, Carnegie Mellon has been in the top five schools of computer science in the nation for the past decade. And so I wanted to go back there and find out what was going on. And then I wanted to be able to do work in that space, real deliverables, real technical work and research to catch myself back up mm-hmm. <laughs> to what so was going what on. The, you knew what the cutting edge was in government and you wanted to see what yes. it was back outside of government. Yes. And I tell you, learning about research and development universities in this country was the greatest gift because that's where innovation is happening. And that's where the startups come out of. And that's where the international brain trust comes together. And it's really something that's unique and powerful in the United States. And I would recommend everybody (laughs) get reconnected to them. And the government, the government's not connected into that to the way it should be. I don't think so. If I use the Software Engineering Institute, which is a government-sponsored re- federal research and development center, I don't think it's leveraged nearly to the level that And it all could these be. startups you're talking about. Yes. Well. No. Yeah. The whole end-to-end right. Right. innovation process and taking that and transitioning that back to government, which is why I worked with Dr. Matt Gaston, who's running it now, to set up the Emerging Technology Center there. That was the idea. Were you surprised at where the where the academic and private sector community was when you came yes. out of government? Yes. You thought they were not going to be as sophisticated as they were? No, I, I didn't think they weren't going to be sophisticated. I was amazed that due to the digital age, so much of what we were interested in was the same. When you and I came into the intelligence community, we were the cutting edge in data and information and analytics. Well, now the, the technology. A lot of the technology is, came out of yes. there, right? Now it's flipped. Yeah. All of the cutting edge business intelligence technologies are in the universities and in the commercial sector. And so then it's about how do we take that, tailor that, and bring it back into government? So then you go to work for task. Yes where you serve as the vice president for cyber engineering and analytics. Yes. What was that all about? So I had almost four incredible years at CMU, and I would have stayed, but I think there was a bit of a glass ceiling because I didn't have my PhD. And so I decided I wanted to learn the for-profit because that was a nonprofit. I wanted to learn the for-profit side and continue to grow and evolve and also take what I had learned and see if I could transition it more directly to government, because I felt that there were a lot of impediments on the federally funded research side. And TASC is a big big contractor for the government. Yes. Yeah. Now we've had mergers, but at the time it was a $1.3 billion company, so mid-sized systems engineering company. And what what did they do on the cyber front? Did they do both defense and offense? Yes, they did. And what I liked about being there was... I could more easily set up partnerships with commercial companies because if you think about it, a systems engineering company is about the service, the architecture and the services. And so we could partner with commercial companies on the product side of things. And so you could pull together a team of amazing commercial companies and then go and do something for did government. You, did you see things maybe both at Carnegie Mellon and then at Task that you thought the government 
really needed and you were frustrated with your ability to get it inside? Oh, yeah. So, for instance, one of the things that we did at uh, CMUSEI was work with uh, one of the large intelligence agencies to help them to put the first Hadoop substantiation in place. So we could... What does that Test. mean? Hadoop substantiation. <laughs> um, basically, think <laughs> of it, it as a uh, a data management and analytics platform. So, with one of the cutting edge, especially okay. at the time, technology platforms to do next generation analytics. And so, you, we could do it in an unclassified environment because guess what? Data is data. Right. Right. And so, you could prove out the approach, and then follow what the requirements were of the agency, and then be able to transition it because we had clearances, we understood mission, but we were also tied to the university and all of the innovation from the university. And we could use interns and PhD candidates doing the unclass portion. So now you're running your own company, Whitehawk. Yes. A great name. (laughs) Um, Fantastic name. By the way, it was Um, hard. It was hard to get it. (laughs) So so your website describes you as the first online cybersecurity exchange. Yes. What does that mean? And why did you start this and what's the whole story? Yeah. So the when I knew that Task was going to merge with another company and I'd been there over 2 years, I had this idea. I had started to have this idea for a company and it actually came to me when I was at one of the major cybersecurity conferences and between 2013 and 14 this arena exploded because of the bad actors going after all business sectors. It used to be that it was the financial sector and government primarily. Around 2013 was when crime and fraud really started moving across all business sectors. And so I go to the RSA conference in San Francisco and I notice the attendance has doubled and the number of cybersecurity companies in the expo has doubled. Yeah. In one year. Yeah. And I'm walking through the expo and I go, you know, I'm having a hard time figuring out all the different capabilities and where they fit and what you need and what is most impactful. What do regular people do? What do small businesses and mid-sized businesses do? Right. And so I started putting together in my brain, what was the enablement that you would need as a smaller mid-sized business with no cybersecurity expertise, which is the majority of them, because you might have an IT director. Most don't have CISOs. Most don't have CIOs. And even if you wanted one, you couldn't get one because there aren't enough to go around. So what would they need? They would need to be able to quickly assess their risk, prioritize according to their revenue and reputation, and get matched to options that were affordable and effective. And effective and easy Got to it. implement. Got it. So somebody we both know, Sandy Winnefeld, Admiral Sandy Winnefeld, yes. Yes. describes cybersecurity as a tree, and each branch is one of the things that you have to take care of, and no single company does everything really well. Correct. In fact, most companies don't do everything. Right. They do a little branch. Yes. And it's really, really hard for companies to know what the branches are, and mm-hmm. then to know who's the best to go to. Mm-hmm. And you're providing that solution. Yes. That's very cool. And in an automated way. So it, I didn't want to do consulting. I wanted it to scale, and I wanted it to be globally accessible. So it was about 
a decision engine <laughs> that's a questionnaire that you could take within 15 minutes and then get mapped to those product options online and be able to buy it with the help either immediately online or through one of our cyber advisors. So are you vetting the companies in terms of their capabilities right. and effectiveness? So what we do is we vet them according to do they have something that's effective to offer mid-sized and small businesses? Then we're you in the next stage we're using customer feedback so that we're not saying whether something's good or bad. You're telling us through your customer feedback. And then we also have an opt-in approach that you can get assessed, okay, at a silver, gold, or platinum level mm. by a partner company mm. on your level of assurance. Mm. And what's your revenue model? Where does your revenue come so from? So it's the Apple App Store model. Mm -hmm. So I wanted innovative, especially innovative small vendors to be able to market for free. Mm -hmm. And then it's a percentage, but only at time of sale. Um, so you, you've, you've been incredibly generous with your time. But by the way, where'd the name come from? White Hawk. So I wanted something positive mm -hmm. and that you could spell and that would also Not some be weird easy, Greek name or Latin yes, name. Yes, yeah. easy to remember. Yeah. And it was actually my CMO, Beth Roston at the time, who said, let's search in this space. And we, we found White Hawk and then we were able to, uh, to buy the dot-com. And sounds incredibly valuable and incredibly useful given, given where we are with this problem. You've been incredibly generous with your time. I just want to ask you one more question. Sure. Which is, if you had a few minutes to sit down and talk with the president and his his national security team about this, what are the themes that you would want to leave them with? Let's lead. Let's lead the way in this space for the sake of our economy. Let's focus on the research, the training, and the education, enabling small businesses. And let's lead the way internationally uh, things that we can agree to on what what is realistic expectation of privacy, on rules of the road regarding warfare and espionage. Let's lead the way on policy and statute. We have created many of these companies out of us. We should continue to lead. Do you have a sense that we're, we might be headed in that direction? I mean, you, you know Rob Joyce, who... who uh... He's the president's cyber person and used to, yeah, used I think, to be, be at NSA. I mean, my, my sense is he has the right, right ideas. It's too focused on just cybersecurity. Okay. I think cyber, the, you know how it is. When you say security, you turn everybody off. Mm -hmm. if, if you make it about the economy mm -hmm. and, and international security. Mm -hmm. People pay attention. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's too limited a role. We're keeping it in this box when it's impacting everything. Gotcha. Terry Roberts, thank you very much for joining us. This was so fun. It was fun. <laughs> it was fun. That was Terry Roberts. I'm Michael Morell, and this was Intelligence Matters. Please join us next time.
I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.